Section zero Introduction of a Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Introduction The Modern Scientific Revolution we are accustomed to distinguish between science and philosophy the main ground of the distinction is that experience when we study it systematically presents to us two distinct aspects one subjective and the other objective science deals with nature the objective aspect of the world when it confronts the mind as external existence philosophy deals with mind the subjective aspect which experience presents when we have regard to the fact that external existence itself is primarily and fundamentally apprehended as idea the two aspects of reality the aspect of existence which it presents to science the aspect of idea which it presents to philosophy are not reciprocally exclusive and cannot exist harmoniously in independence for each in its very definition is universal in the absolute meaning of the term and each therefore is inclusive of the other hence the initial difficulty of the problem of their relation a problem which since the development and triumphant advance of scientific knowledge in the nineteenth century has come more and more to be the main and crucial problem of philosophy every relation implies an identity underlying the manifest difference in the terms but in the case of the two aspects which reality presents to our mind the scientific and the philosophic there seems no possibility of reconciling the difference in an identity we seem in fact to have not a relation but two alternatives the adoption of either philosophy or science involving the rejection of the other for so far as science is knowledge it must fall within the knowing which philosophy regards as experience but in so far as science presupposes the existence of its object its reality must assume a form which is inaccessible to philosophy and philosophy itself to be justified as science must fall within existence and cease to be philosophy and this gives rise to a curious dilemma the one horn is that reality or existence supposed independent of knowledge is in its independence not merely unknown but by its definition unknowable and to be unknowable and to be non-existent are so far as our thinking is concerned one and the same the other horn is that the essence of science is discovery and if there be no existence completely independent of the knowledge of it there is nothing to discover science has never been seriously troubled with this dilemma indeed the very fact that philosophy has been so largely engrossed with it has always been to science the reproach of philosophy marking it as an abstract speculative jejune logistic inquiry remote from the concrete practical urgent interests of human life for itself science simply sweeps the difficulty aside cuts the gordian knot by the simple rough-and-ready device of assuming the existence of the object it is required to presuppose assuming that is the entire independence of the object in its existence of the act by which it is known but having done so science cannot stop the need for a theory of knowledge is imperative 
because knowledge itself is fact. It is obliged, therefore, to go on and assume that knowing is not anything, that it is no more than the simple de facto relation of togetherness, in which one thing, a mind, in consequence of a peculiar quality it possesses, can, without affecting in any way the thing which confronts it, contemplate that thing, and thereby know it, without its knowing contributing anything to the constitution of the thing known. In this way, science has come to adopt, as its method, the study of the material universe in complete abstraction from the conditions of knowledge, and has set before itself, as its ideal, the attainment of a systematic body of truth about the universe, devoid altogether of any taint of subjectivity or relativity. Science has certainly seemed to be justified by success. Indeed, it is difficult even to imagine that its great advance in modern times could have been achieved had it chosen any other method. That it should be untrammeled by irrelevance was the condition of development. It is by narrowing inquiry, by concentrating observation, by excluding larger issues, by dividing and subdividing, that it has conquered. But there is a limit, and the very advance of science by its own method, and on its own chosen conditions, has brought it face to face with the philosophical problem it set out by ignoring. It finds itself, after a century of continuous triumphant progress, arrested, not by the clamor of philosophers, but by the empirical discoveries of its own researchers, and forced to revise its apparently workable hypothesis that knowing is not anything. If science is discovery, it must at least be of some consequence to know who or what it is that discovers, and what are the conditions of discovery. A revolution once started has a way of gathering momentum and goes on completing itself, and today science, from its old attitude of regarding knowing as not anything, is fast coming to regard it as everything. The revolution has come with dramatic suddenness, but, like all revolutions, it has been long preparing. Its fall of the Bastille was the verification of Einstein's calculation of the shift of the stars, observed during the total eclipse of May 29, 1919. This proved that the path of the light rays is curved in a gravitational field, and rendered meaningless the hypothesis of homoloidal space. But though the revolution has been sudden, the scientific world was ripe for it. For many years, and in many directions, the old bedrock materialism, on which science had hitherto builded, was seen to be cracking and crumbling. Along several lines the sciences have been steadily converging on the necessity of a complete revision of their fundamental principle. First, there stands the doctrine of Berkeley. More and more, as science has advanced, it has become obvious to scientific thinkers that this doctrine cannot be ignored, but must be reckoned with. It is easy enough to make a definite and clear distinction between the concepts of scientific reality and the percepts of sensible experience. But is it not evident that these percepts of the senses are the immediate objects of knowledge? How, then, do we pass from these subjective, sensible qualities to the objective concepts of the scientific reality? What is the relation between the one and the other? When we have systematically worked out our concept of the scientific reality with its unsensed mathematical properties, can we say that it is full reality, and that the colors, sounds, tastes, smells, feelings, which make up our experience of reality, 
Are not anything a shadow world of mere illusion? We must admit that they are something. But if they are something, may they not, must they not, be everything? This problem of the status of sensations and their exact position in the scheme of physical reality has particularly engaged the physicists. They, by their truly magnificent generalizations, enable us to form images of physical reality which represent a universe absolutely indifferent to consciousness. A world, for example, in which light, electricity, magnetism, and the rest are independent completely of the color, sound, feeling by which they are known, and which would be what they are even were there no consciousness, and therefore no sensible quality to be experienced. But then these sensations and the sensible qualities of which they are the experience are de facto existence. What place and what role is to be assigned to them in physical theory? One character of them is that of being subjective responses to objective stimuli. But that does not prevent them being objective in the full scientific meaning, as they could not be accommodated in the general materialistic or naturalistic conceptions of physics. It was supposed that they could be sidetracked, and for this purpose the physicists had recourse to the philosophers. Sensations, and, generally, the sensible qualities which they imply, were declared to be epiphenomena, a euphonious way of saying they are nothing, or they were recognized as existent facts, but declared to belong to an independent and parallel series, having no relations of interaction with the physical series. This makeshift theory could not work, but it seemed to serve a purpose, and at least to enable science to guard the pure objectivity of its subject matter. It broke down completely when science recognized the failure of all attempts to determine the movement of a system by observations within the system. This brought out with sudden clearness that the activity of the observer is an essential determinant factor of the nature of the physical fact itself. The principle of relativity is the abandonment of the attempt in science to disassociate act and fact. A second line along which science, following its own method and holding fast to its distinctively objective principle, has found its own progress bring it into conflict with its own principle, is in the scientific concept of life. The biological sciences arose under a kind of rational protest against the superstitious idea that life is a mystery. The tree of life planted by God in Eden, something linking us with the supernatural and the divine, which it is impious to investigate scientifically. The rapid success of biology seemed at first to be wholly due to the application of mechanistic concepts of physics, so much so that a few years ago all biologists believed we might be on the point of demonstrating the complete success of the scientific method by the synthetic production of living matter in a chemical laboratory. The outstanding feature of the scientific attainment of the 19th century is the Darwinian theory of evolution by natural selection, that is, by a selection conceived purely naturalistically as a survival of the fittest. But without any relapse into finalistic and teleological categories, hateful to the scientific spirit, the progress of biological science, following its own line of investigation, has suggested and brought increasing certainty to the suggestion that the intellect is itself a product of evolution. The study of instinctive action and of purposive action generally tends increasingly to confirm it. But if intellect is a product of evolution, 
the whole mechanistic concept of the nature and origin of life is absurd and the principle which science has adopted must clearly be revised we have only to state it to see the self-contradiction how can the intellect a mode of apprehending reality be itself an evolution of something which only exists as an abstraction of that mode of apprehending which is the intellect if intellect is an evolution of life then the concept of the life which can evolve intellect as a particular mode of apprehending reality must be the concept of a more concrete activity than that of any abstract mechanical movement which the intellect can present to itself by analyzing its apprehended content and yet further if the intellect be a product of the evolution of life it is not absolute but relative to the activity of the life which has evolved it how then in such case can science exclude the subjective aspect of the knowing and build on the objective presentation as an absolute clearly the biological sciences necessitate a reconsideration of the scientific principle a third line is that of the criticism of the foundation of the mathematical sciences if not more important than the other lines it has certainly been more decisive it has led to the formulation of the general principle of relativity and this has involved a complete revolution in our notions of the structure of the universe and necessitated the entire reformation of our concepts of space time and matter skepticism in regard to the postulates of the mathematical sciences has been until quite recent times purely theoretical never seeming even to threaten to justify itself in any practical application indeed it has seemed eminently the occupation of highly speculative minds detached completely from any practical interests or else the attraction of writers of romance attempting to rationalize the creations of a fertile imagination those for example who in the past have speculated on the possibility of a fourth dimension of space or of a reversal of the order of temporal succession have been moved to it either by their interest in theories of personal survival or purely spiritual existence and their satisfaction in the result of such speculations has been due rather to comfort in the suggestion of possibilities than to attainment in the discovery or hope of discovery of fact but meanwhile a steady progress of purely scientific investigation has led to a new cosmogony and a new theogony based on a new metaphysic of physical reality let us indicate briefly the lines of this development first we may notice the entirely modern research which has led to the mathematical theory of continuity mathematics is the typical exact science conceived by us as essentially true without depending in any manner on subjective opinion yet at its very basis it is challenged to justify its affirmation of the reality of the continuum on which its propositions depend and in regard to which alone its propositions have meaning and are true what is the relation between the physical continuum which is based on our perceptions of reality and the mathematical continuum of which there are no perceptions but which we construct conceptually from the implications of sensible perception in its origin the mathematical continuum is the attempt to rationalize a common contradictory experience a certain sense given particular a a shade of color a musical note a feeling of push or resistance is indistinguishable from a numerically different particular b and b in like manner is indistinguishable from c yet a is distinguishable from c for example a shade of green in a color scale may be indistinguishable by perception from the shade below and the shade above 
while yet the difference of these two is clearly perceptible. To harmonize this discrepancy, and reconcile it with the logical principle of contradiction, we suppose that behind the physical continuum which we perceive there is a real or mathematical continuum, of which the physical continuum is only an imperfect apprehension, and we seem to find abundant proof of this in experience itself in the instruments devised to increase the discerning powers of the sense-organs. It is the triumph of modern mathematics to have shown the mode in which the mind constructs this continuum. It consists not of atoms or electrons or ether, but of points, lines, planes, and it has become conceptual space, the subject matter of the science of geometry. The infinite divisibility of the mathematical continuum, which has been from ancient times the fruitful origin of antinomies of reason, is shown in the modern theory to be involved in the construction of a concept. More striking still has been the result of the criticism of the postulates of geometry. From ancient times Euclid's postulate of parallelism has seemed to invite demonstration, and at the same time to defeat all attempts to demonstrate it. It is impossible to state that postulate in terms which carry the conviction of self-evidence. Today we have in the non-Euclidean geometries the definite demonstration that it is indemonstrable. No contradictory results whatever follow from rejecting the postulate or from postulating the direct opposite of it. The result of this has been a complete reversal of the status once assigned to Euclidean geometry. From seeming to be the only possible science of space, the space system of the Euclidean geometry is now a limit. In the theory of relativity, it is the geometry of a point instant infinitely remote from gravitational fields, that is, the geometry of a space system when the distance from a gravitational center is infinite. In other words, Euclid's elements are not dethroned or rejected as untrue, but applicable in their absolute character, and this alone is the concern of mathematics, in an ideal region. What the criticism of the mathematical postulates has changed profoundly, therefore, is not our science of geometry, but our concept of the space which is the subject matter of that science. Instead of absolute space, arrived at by what we have hitherto regarded as a kind of instinctive reasoning, and then set up as a necessary concept of the framework of nature, we have now an infinite series of space systems, with the ideal space of the Euclidean geometry as a limit. And even these space systems are not concrete reality, they are abstractions whenever they are taken apart from the time dimension. For concrete nature is not matter, but movement, and concrete mind is not contemplation, but activity. It is no longer true, if it once seemed to be true, that the mathematical, physical, and natural sciences depend on the realistic hypothesis in philosophy. The assumption of material existence as a presupposition of the activity of mind in knowing and acting, even as a purely methodological postulate, is unworkable in science. This is the meaning of the new Copernican revolution in science, which is named the principle of relativity. Knowledge is the expression of the deep-seated need of the mind for unity. The intellect is an unceasing activity of judgment. Whatever the intellect apprehends, it relates, and it apprehends by relating. The mode of its activity is externalization. Its objective, therefore, appears always as the multiplicity rather than as the unity of its object. And the unification implied in the systemic order it imposes seems an external unification, something to which objects submit in virtue of their own intrinsic nature. 
but the only unity which can effectively satisfy is a unity which includes the subject of knowledge science based on a dualistic assumption is foredoomed to failure directly it attempts to rationalize its attainment as a matter of fact the history of philosophy shows us that the invariable result of such an initial assumption is that ceaseless attempts follow to reduce one of the two terms to nullity this is the meaning of the controversy between realism and idealism each strong in its affirmation of what the other denies the keynote of modern idealism and its strength is the affirmation that reality is concrete it rejects the abstract only in so far as it is set up as concrete in its abstractness it rejects the presupposition of an object independent in its existence of the subject for which it is object not on the ground of logical inconsistency not on the basis of a metaphysical ontology which identifies essa and percipi but purely on the ground of its abstractness idealism rejects equally the presupposition of a subject independent in its existence of the object god independent of nature minds independent of things in this there is no conflict with physical science because for science the subject of knowledge is a pure abstraction science hitherto in claiming concreteness for its object has imagined a pure object free from all subjectivity modern science is now coming into line with modern philosophy in the recognition that actual experience alone is concrete this is what is meant by the idealistic interpretation of the principle of relativity not that scientific reality has no other basis than the ideas in the minds of subjects of experience but that it is based on an objectivity which derives its whole meaning from the concrete experience of the subject science no longer asks us to assume that there are abstract things in themselves contemplated by pure intelligences a very striking analogy to the modern scientific revolution is presented to us in the development of the cartesian philosophy of the seventeenth century that philosophy began with a distinction of two substances thought and extension the one corresponding to what we think of as pure contemplative intellect the other to the independent object of contemplation nature this philosophy arose when physics was differentiating itself from mathematics following galileo and relying more and more on the experimental method the philosophy of descartes seemed to provide the very mechanistic basis of which science stood in need the conception of a purely independent objective universe whose inmost constitution could be mechanistically explained as a philosophy however we see it striving throughout its development and continually failing and finally completely failing to discover any intelligible principle on which to establish the relation between the two substances which is presupposed in the concept of them the dualism which science seems so imperatively to demand proved unworkable the way of escape was offered by leibniz but it involved a reform of the concept of substance itself in place of the concept of substance as the substratum of two systems or orders of movement one inert and mechanical the other contemplative and volitional leibniz formulated the concept of substance as essentially active and dynamic reality was constituted he said of simple substances but these were the monads active subjects of experience each having the universe mirrored in its acting centre these monads were not conceived as independent minds dotted about in an alien matter in an independent universe which they behold in their own manner and make the best of they were conceived as centres of activity an activity consisting in the perceptions of which the objective world or nature consists when we make allowance for the differences in the outlook of the seventeenth century in science philosophy and religion 
do we not see that the essence of this reform of the concept of reality is to substitute concrete experience for the independent abstractions mind and matter when we turn to the new conception which is presented to us in the four-dimensional continuum of minkowski and the finite yet unbounded universe of einstein do we not find that the basis of this conception is precisely the same namely the rejection of abstractions such as absolute space and time and pure contemplative intellect and the substitution of actual concrete experience to see that this is so we have only to look behind the brilliant mathematical devices which form the scaffolding of the new scientific structure and fix our attention on the leading motive and method and we see at once that the strength and security of its foundation lies in its conception of scientific reality as constituting wholly in individual experience and not in any degree or in any respect on presupposed conditions of experience take for example the new discovery of the constant velocity of light the constancy of this calculated velocity depends simply on the experience not on a presupposition of experience that we have no more rapid way of communicating than light signals afford if we had or should ever come to have then the constancy of this velocity would cease to be a fact but this is a minor point and a detail let us come to the main conception itself in the universe as minkowski and einstein require us to conceive it there is no simultaneity this does not mean that we have to calculate the simultaneity of events on a new principle it means that simultaneity in the old sense has lost its significance and in fact represents nothing no two events are simultaneous in any universal meaning also there is no universal system of geometry nothing which even corresponds to the euclidean geometry in the old conception every point event has its own geometrical system instead of euclidean geometry we are given the concept of infinite geometrical systems of which the euclidean may be a limiting case now when we look behind these facts to the concept of reality on which they rest we are able to see at once that their whole ground and rationality lie in the conception of scientific reality as constituted wholly of concrete experience every point event in this universe whose track forms a world line has to be taken primarily from its own standpoint according to which it is the center of the universe and its world line the norm of direction and all other events and world lines are coordinated by it on a principle which maintains its standard at no point in this universe and under no aspect of it can we dissolve the experience into factors and say here we have pure nature and here we have pure mind in what follows i have endeavored to outline the philosophy of this concept of a scientific reality based on pure concrete experience without presuppositions end of introduction recording by olivia